0: All right, so Genesis 26, or will read verse 34 and 35, and that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Bashemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. Now flip over to chapter 28, and I'll read the first nine verses there. Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 through 9. And Isaac called Jacob, and blessed him, and charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother." And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people, and give thee a blessing of Abraham to thee, and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Paddan Aram unto Laban, son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother." When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take him a wife from thence, and that he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padan Aram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau to Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had. Mahalatha, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebojath, to be his wife. Now let's go look at chapter 36, and I'll just read the first three verses there. Genesis chapter 36, the first three verses. In Genesis chapter 36, we read, Now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom, Esau took his wives of the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elan the Hittite, and Ehul Obama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zeboan the Hivite, and Bashemath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nabojath. And this is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we would pray now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might see Christ, we would might see your your will for us, and we might see our willfulness in ourselves and how thou workest all things out for thy good pleasure according to thy perfect will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to really be focusing on that first verses, the first verses I read, Genesis 26, verses 34 and 35, where we read again, And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. So at this point in Esau's life, I want us to appreciate that he has sold his birthright for a morsel of uh, meat. And God describes him in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, as a profane person and as a fornicator. And that would be the summary of his life. Hebrews chapter 11, you'll recall, talks about the walk of faith, and it summarizes the um, patriarch's life there. And if you just read that, you would think to yourselves, well, they didn't really have any problem in their Christian walk. But we know otherwise, reading in Genesis, the things that they struggled with. And we're going to read more about that today. But that's the summary of Esau's life. He's a fornicator and a profane person, which I would say is quite a condemning summary of anybody's life. So having sold his birthright for one morsel of meat, we know that he rejected the eternal promises of God, preferring the temporal satisfaction of the things that this life might offer. The scripture would say that his treasures are here because his heart is here. In Matthew 6, 21, the Lord says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Esau obviously treasured the things of this earth because that's where his heart was. His parents, we know, were godly people. While Rebekah was yet barren with Isaac, she sought or entreated the Lord on her behalf because she ascribed the conception of her to God and knew that God would, uh, the issue about what was going on inside her with respect to twins that she was bearing, he would be able to share that with her. Um, So she inquired of the Lord as to why the children struggled within her so Her husband um, entreated on her behalf, treated the Lord that she would conceive, and uh, the Lord uh, was entreated of him and she did conceive. So we appreciate that both the parents turned to the Lord for issues that they had and concerns that they had, and they would have done so because they would have thought that and felt that and known that that God could uh, answer their petitions and remedy their their situation because they were godly people. We appreciate that they each had a relationship with the Lord and looked to him for the comfort in the issues of life that they faced, which is something, of course, we should all do. That's why these things are written here for our admonition and learning that we would do the same thing and that we would find remedy with the Lord just as they did. Now, by way of reminder, we learned in Genesis chapter 24 that it was God who chose Rebecca to be the wife of Isaac. She was raised, as we know, and we will continue to learn, she was raised in an ungodly household. And by what things that followed, the arrival of Abraham's steward, we know that she received the gospel, she heard the gospel, and she responded to the gospel, God graciously grafting her into the spiritual house of Abraham by faith." Now, which faith we see manifest when she inquires of the Lord regarding her pregnancy. So she has um, she's become a Christian. Started with an ungodly beginning in an ungodly house, like most of us did or all of us did, and now she's a Christian by virtue of the fact that uh, a gospel preacher was sent to her. She received the gospel, and she's now grafted in by faith to um, the house of a spiritual house of Abraham. Now we will also see her faith and fervent belief in the promises of God when she directs Jacob to um, imitate Esau, that he might receive his father's blessings, which normally would have fallen to Esau by order of the birthright. So it is she the one who dresses up uh, her son Jacob and puts him in a position to receive blessings that Esau would have received. So clearly we can appreciate that she believes in the eternality of the promises that God gave to Abraham and desires that they would be Jacob's and not Esau's. And completely consistent with everything we know about man, Rebekah does what people are prone to do and what we are prone to do and what Sarah and Abraham thought to do and did, which was to help God do what God said he would do and what things we want God to do as if God needed our help. We tend to go down this road. We have a desire that God do certain things, and so we try to manipulate events so that things will go the way we think they should go. Um, I find myself in prayer very frequently telling God what he should do. (laughs) That is the the multitude of my petitions, me telling God what I think he should do. And so we see these people acting and and, uh, working out the events in their lives to do that very thing, trying to manipulate events so that things will go the way they think she, they should go. And so that's exactly what Rebecca does. She manipulates events, dresses uh, Jacob up to look like Esau, and sends him in there to receive the blessing of his father, Isaac. Now, as we mer- move further through Genesis, we would note that our main characters, in our main characters, is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We will see less and less of man meddling in the affairs of God and more and more of them waiting upon God, uh, waiting for God to do the things that he said that he would do. There's less reliance upon self and more reliance upon God. Now, this, of course, is a lesson for all of us in terms of our own Christian walk about how we should conduct ourselves. Less of me trying to direct the steps of God, or I should say less of me trying to direct my steps, and the steps of God, and more of me following and waiting upon the Lord. Less of me trying to fight the world and its ways, and more time in prayer and the reading of God's word, the Bible, to ascertain God's will. Now, note the way that I have expressed this transformation. Less of me and more of God. Now, while that sounds good and accurately expresses what I think I'm doing and what I think I'm experiencing, it's actually backwards from what I'm actually experiencing and and subject to. For I've expressed it in such a way as to put me in the driver's seat with God filling a void that I'm vacating, while the reality of my experience is the exact opposite of that. The truth is not less of me and more of God, but rather more of God and less of me. And that's the way John the Baptist Phrased it when he said of Christ, "He must increase, but I must decrease." It is God who is conforming us to the image of His Son Jesus Christ, not we who are conforming ourselves to His image. You recall that when the Israelites come into the Promised Land, that God says that He will drive the inhabitants out of the land, but they're expected to come in and um, be part of that process. They don't drive the inhabitants out and then God fills a vacuum that's been created, but it's the other way around. He drives the inhabitants out and then they, by obedience, would then come in and fill the void. And so it is in my life. It is God who drives out me and then that I come uh, behind him in in the void that he has filled on my behalf. Now, having said all that, we can clearly see from the lives of the people set before us in Genesis that conformity to Christ is not a passive experience. And so without overthinking of it, we should do the things that God tells us to do in his word, which is to watch and pray that we enter not into temptation, to walk in the spirit, that we would not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, to crucify the flesh with the affections and the lust, And he says, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those that are of the household of faith, And that to the extent that it is possible, as much as lieth in us, that we should live peaceably with all men. And then the Lord places before us the most difficult of all of these things when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so we see that, as I had said in the past, that we have been given very many admonitions of the Lord to do these things. And these are all things that the Lord tells us to do and he empowers us to do by his Holy Spirit. Now, getting back to Isaac and Rebekah, parents of Esau, we see the fact that he has taken two wives of the daughters of Heth is a grief of mind, or in the Hebrew, grief of spirit, to his parents. As godly parents who appreciate the relationship between a husband and wife, they can see that Esau, as a fleshly man, is further entrenching himself in this world. And that is a heartbreak for Christian parents to see. You know the way your son or daughter should go, having brought them up in the, near, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We know the way a person should go, that they might enjoy eternal life. We know that straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man cometh unto the Father but by him. So when you see your child embrace the world, you know that the love of God is not in them. The Lord says that. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So we know that when we see that happen in our lives of our children, we know that they are indeed on the, in the broad way, and they're heading through the wide gate that leadeth unto destruction which, of course, is eternal suffering and separation from God. And that is a grief of mine to any Christian parent. That Esau has done this is indicative that he has rejected the gospel of grace, which no doubt was preached to him by his parents. Not only has it been preached to him, but as we have seen manifest in their lives, the gospel has been acted out, in their lives, according to the things that God has done in their lives. Esau surely must know the family history. Surely he has been told by Abraham what things we have read in Genesis. How that he, Abraham, was called out of Ur the Chaldees, you know, and how he had a walk of faith, the things that he struggled with and, and um, faced in his life. Surely he knows about the miraculous birth of his father, Isaac, And he must know how Isaac was offered up and received back in a figure through the substitutionary offering of the ram who was caught in the um, thicket by his horns. Surely he knows all of those things. Surely he has heard of the promises of God and the altars of worship that were frequented by Abraham and his father, Isaac. Surely he has heard that God is calling out a people for himself whom he would separate from the world. And by what things we see Esau do, particularly in choosing wives from among the daughters of Heth, which are the Canaanites, he is embracing the world and entrenching himself in it. He is not living lightly as a pilgrim should live, as one who is passing through this life with great expectations for the next life, expectations that are rooted in the promises of God, some of which he should have seen fulfilled in the lives of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. He is taking wives of the daughters of the land in direct opposition to the admonition given by Abraham to his steward when a wife was to be found for his father Isaac. Abraham made his steward swear, this is from Genesis 24, 3, Abraham made his steward swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Now, no doubt Abraham made him swear this because he knew what a snare it would be for a man to marry a Canaanite woman. When God instructs Moses to instruct the Israelites before entering into the promised land, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, this is what the God shares with them. He says, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. That would be the daughters of the land, the, the people of the, the promised land, the Canaanites. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. And here's the reason why you don't do that. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods, so will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. The heart that follows not God, which is to say believes not God, nor in his son Jesus Christ, abides under the wrath of God. He has said here, if their hearts are turned away, the Lord's anger will be kindled against you and will destroy thee suddenly. Now in John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18 are the verses that everybody is so familiar with. I should say we're familiar with John 3:16, but people don't like to read all the way down to verse 18. So we're going to read that now. In John 3:16 through 18, we read, For God so loved the world, meaning he loved the world in this manner, not that he loved everybody in the world. It's commonly misunderstood. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a very simple and it's a very true statement. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Of a truth, when Christ came, when God was manifest in the flesh, he did so to save his people from their sin. Didn't come to condemn it. The next time he comes, he's coming to condemn it. Now, You will recall that Jesus says to the Jews, he says, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That's from John chapter 8, verse 56. What the Lord is telling us in John 8 is that Abraham believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the cross. He knew that his sins were covered, and so his faith and trust was in him. Same thing would have been true for Isaac, and the same thing is true for all of the people that lived in the Old Testament if their sins are covered, they're covered by Christ. And so they look forward to the cross, just as we today look backwards to the cross. Now, verse 18 is where nobody likes to read. He that believeth on him, that's to say, he that believeth on Christ is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, what, respecting what I'm saying here about Esau marrying a Canaanite woman and God's admonition against such unions is stated quite simply in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three, the Lord says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. In other words, the Canaanite will corrupt your thinking, and so you will need to keep yourself from them. Again, from Hebrews 12, 16, the Lord reminds us that Esau is described as a fornicator and profane person, person, clearly adopting the idolatrous practices of the Canaanites. And so here we have seen that he has taken two wives together. And as a result of this, uh, we can appreciate that he has rejected God and his ways, and the spiritual ramifications of that are eternal death. He is not trusting in the Lord. He is not following his ways. He's not believing the gospel. He's rejected his parents' um, admonitions, which means he's ultimately in rebellion against God. And so this naturally is a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, later in Genesis 28 and chapter 28 and chapter 36, we're going to learn that he takes more wives traveling yet further down this broad way. He has rejected the truth that one man and one woman constitutes a godly marriage. And this is because, as I said, he's in rebellion against God and his parents who would have taught him those things. Now, one of the things I would have appreciate next, and this is from a big picture view of Scripture, is how influential wives and mothers are in the lives of their families. Now, in Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, we see Rebekah is going to go into Isaac and say something to him. She says, and Rebekah said unto Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these, which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life be unto me? I find this interesting, and I find some humor in this, as I'll get to in a minute, but women have a great influence on their husbands. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Rebecca says this to her husband Isaac after she has learned that Esau has sworn to slay his brother Jacob because Jacob has stolen his blessing. The blessing that Isaac would have given to Esau had Rebekah not intervened and put Jacob in in the place of Esau to steal it. So the humor I find in this is the notion that women are so oppressed in a, quote, patriarchal society that they are nothing but bystanders and victims of their husbands' ambitions. Yet when you look at scripture, you will find that they exercise great influence on the course of history. It was Eve, the wife of Adam, and his love for her that caused the fall of man. In 1 Timothy 2.14, the Lord tells us this. It says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Being deceived and having eaten of the tree of life of the knowledge of good and evil, Eve gives unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Why did he do that? Because he loved her. We've talked about that. It is Sarah who gives Hagar, her bondservant, to Abraham, that he might lie with her and bear a child, for which she later takes ownership of what she has done. In Genesis 16, five, we read, Sarah said unto Abraham, my wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. Not only did Sarah's offering her bondmaid to Abraham, of which he was an obvious participant of. Not only did that precipitate much heartache in his life, it has caused the countless deaths and misery in the Middle East unto this very day. And so here in Genesis 27, it is Rebecca, notwithstanding the sovereignty of God, who is shaping events to come. With respect to the iron leadership of men, I liken a woman to a magnet that bends and alters the direction a man might resolutely take. I have mentioned to you that I'm reading lots of historical novels. It's written by one author, and they all follow the same pattern. He sets up the life of the protagonist, the main character in the book, who appears to resolutely be going in a direction, And then a few chapters into it, a woman is introduced and suddenly he takes a left turn and his life is never the same, (laughs) nor is all of the events around him the same. But that's the reality of, of life here. All of these things that I'm sharing with you in the scripture here are simply shadows and illusions of the relationship between Christ and his beloved wife, the church. Though they, as all shadows do, they always come short of the reality of it. But each of these things... Um, Shed some light on to the way Christ behaves with his church. It is the love Christ has for his sinful bride, the church, that puts Christ on the cross. It was the woman that was deceived that made necessary the cross of Christ. I'm speaking of Eve. It was her failure to trust in the promises of God that made necessary the cross of Christ. I'm speaking of Sarah. It was her willingness that made necessary, excuse me, it was her willfulness that made necessary the cross of Christ. Now I'm speaking of Rebecca, and then if you move to Jacob's wives, it was their envious nature between them that one was bearing child and another was not, that made necessity, that made necessary the cross of Christ. And so I want us to appreciate, because now here's my qualifying statement, that Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh, was never reactionary. But nevertheless, the things I'm sharing with you shed light on this. Um, but I want us to see, at least in shadow, that it is Christ, our husband, who gave his life for us, the church, his beloved bride, going to the cross to die for our sins, which of course he was ordained to do before the world began. So again, sovereignty of God in there, but I want us to appreciate that it is because of us that these men are doing these different things. It is because the women that we see their their lives altered and shaped. Now, so here in Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, fearing that Jacob will be slain by Esau and knowing that the wives of Esau, uh, that the wives he has taken for himself, are a grief to Isaac and Rebekah, Uh, their their grief to both of them, Rebecca plants the seed. She knows that this is a, um, a concern to Isaac, and so she now plants a seed which germinates in the mind of Isaac, who then sends Jacob away to find a wife from his mother's relatives, which is consistent in terms of what his father did for him. So Rebecca plants a seed in Isaac's mind that he will send Jacob away, and this she does, of course, to protect Jacob from Esau. Jacob, as you will recall, was her favorite, and so she's going to protect him, and so she gets him sent away. So again, we see Rebecca's intervening um, with a desire to help God uh, due to her lack of faith that she has already demonstrated that she possessed. And this is a common characteristic in the life of a saint or a common contradiction. We'll demonstrate faith and trust in God in one area, and then something that might be particularly precious to us, we'll try to manipulate events to see that they go that the way we want them to go, failing to trust God over there, failing to be patient and wait on the Lord in that area of our life. So we trust when we must, but we often fall back to our own devices, and so we can never thank God for his patience and his preservation of us. The sending of Jacob to Abraham's family to seek a wife is likened unto you and me seeking a spouse from amongst the church. We are to seek a spouse from amongst other Christians for which we need to wait on the Lord to either bring one to us or to direct our steps to one. And so if God is placed on your heart to marry, then you must pray for his leadership in that manner. And so what later takes place in the matrimonial affairs of Esau is that instead of seeking his parents' wisdom and finding a wife suitable for him, he takes Bashamath, Ishmael's daughter, to wife, perhaps thinking that in so doing, he is taking a wife from amongst his own people, as Isaac had told Jacob to do. Ishmael, you recall, was Abraham's firstborn son, albeit of his concubine. Now, this would be an example of someone understanding the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, somebody failing to understand the two purpose or principle uh, behind a particular matter. Now, of a truth, you cannot graft yourself into God's blessed tree. Later in uh, Genesis chapter 34, we're gonna see that's what the Shechemites try to do. They try to graft themselves into Jacob's family when they take Dinah and then seek to um, get their permission to marry her uh, with the uh, condition that they get circumcised. They're trying to graft themselves into the blessings. So you can read about that in Genesis 34, verses 22 and 23. In Romans 11, that our deacon read this morning, speaks to this principle too about grafting into the olive tree. God has to do the grafting. He breaks branches out and he puts branches in. You do not graft yourself in. So God must graft you in. Though God's blessing, or though God has blessed Abraham, marrying his granddaughter, Ishmael's daughter, will not make you a partaker of the blessings conferred upon Abraham, particularly so because God has said that Ishmael would not be heir with Isaac. Again, the spiritual lesson here in terms of the gospel, which is the apprehension of grace through faith in Christ, is that it is a gift of God. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, again, 13 is a verse that people don't like to read. They'll stop at 12. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says, But as many as received him, that would mean received Christ, to them gave he power. The power to become a son of God is given to you, even to them that believe on his name. Now, verse 13 says, Which were born... Not of blood. In other words, it's not a physical relationship with anybody. So the fact that Esau is a blood relative of Abraham and Isaac is not going to confer any spiritual blessings on him, nor is it of the will of the flesh. There's nothing in us that would desire these things, nor of the will of man. Esau might desire them once he appreciates what they are, but he never does. But you cannot confer it upon yourself by virtue of your own will, by virtue of your relationship, by virtue of the will of your flesh. It says, but of God, which were born, again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the receptions of the blessing of God are by the gift of God only. Now, having said that, we appreciate that it is God the Father who found a wife for his son, Jesus Christ, and that, of course, is a blessing. So in the Proverbs, I'll read just portions of the Proverbs, Proverbs nineteen fourteen. it says that a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 12.4 says that a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. Proverbs 18.22 says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtain favor of the Lord. So it is a blessing to find a good wife, and you can infer this on women too, to, to find a good spouse. It is a gift from God when he leads you to a, a godly spouse. God selected a wife for Christ from amongst the people that he foreknew, just as Abraham sent his steward to people he foreknew, and as Isaac sent Jacob to a people that he foreknew, teaching us that God chose from amongst people he foreknew the wife of Christ. It is God that should select our spouse for us. And in the uh, case of Scripture, we see that he works through the parents often to do so. He saw a profane man clearly rejected his parents' counsel and wisdom, showing himself to be a man of the earth. And this was a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah because they knew what it meant in terms of his spiritual life, as any parent should know, as any godly parent should know. Now, pay attention to this next thing I'm going to say, and this is the end of this morning's sermon. We learned in Galatians chapter four, verses 22 and 24, that women in the scriptures allegorically can represent what truths we embrace. We have uh, Sarah representing the gospel of grace, Jerusalem from above, which is the mother of us all. And we have Hagar representing the gospel of um, it's not a gospel, but um, I'll call it the gospel of works, which is not uh, the gospel. So one woman represents freedom and grace in God, and the other woman represents bondage to the law. That's what women can represent in the scripture. So we should appreciate that we have to be careful what spiritual truths we embrace because they can cause a world of hurt both to ourselves and to others. And so we need ever be cautious that we may remain rooted in the truths as set forth in God's word. So be careful what truth you embrace. And like I said, that's what women often represent in the scriptures. And so we have Abraham embracing Sarah, his wife that was given to him, which is a gospel of grace. When he lied with Hagar, it caused nothing but trouble. And we see here that Esau is embracing all sorts of different women, and it's um, um, it does not go well for him. That, that we know. So with that, I'll say amen.